Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. We're in our summer series called Stops Along the Way. And uh, really just kind of following Jesus as he would teach his disciples, traveling through the countryside, and, and like a master teacher, you know, it wasn't a classroom, it wasn't like a weekend seminar, he would just travel through life, and as he would have these stops along the way, teaching them deep, valuable truths about God's kingdom, about who Jesus is, about how we relate with one another, and so our our kind of perspective here would be like, if we could just sit in the seat of these disciples, if we could put on their lenses, understand things the way that they understood them, and just seek to understand from Jesus what he sought to teach his disciples. This morning, I want to get right to the passage. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, I want to get right to the passage here. If you have one of the yellow, uh, orange Bibles, it's page 683. This is Mark chapter 2. And as you're turning there, can I just say, this is one of the passages that um, when I grew up and I heard this passage, I kind of liked it. Because um, disclosure, there's a part of me, I call it the prophetic part of me. It's like when Jesus had some of those words that were countercultural, that just kind of like, you know, like socked, you socked it to the bad guy kind of thing. Like I just find my soul like liking that. I don't know if that's good or bad, but this is one of those passages where he really breaks down some categories. He breaks down categories of how people would understand who belongs in the kingdom of God and who's outside of the kingdom of God. See, because for me, um, God didn't save me from a life of dealing drugs or anything like that. I, my story is a little bit the opposite of that. Like, I grew up in really churchy environments from the time that I was little. But what I experienced being in those environments is that typically the church is really good at, at drawing kind of a box and saying that these kinds of people that look a certain way, act a certain way, um, they're in, and people that don't fit that parameter, well, they're out. And so I, that, that I, because of that, like I saw some of the hurts of being, like growing up in that environment. Um, there's some great things. I'm so grateful for the way that I was brought up. The privilege I have is just remarkable. But there are also some gnarly parts about the church. And, and what I love about this passage is like Jesus just takes like a, like, like, like Thor's hammer to it and just like obliterates it. He blows these categories apart and, and I love that inside. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at this passage and see how Jesus does that, okay? In Mark chapter 2 verse 13 says this. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began, <coughs> excuse me, to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw, saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus obliterates categories. In that one statement, 
There are three types of people that were listening to this, and he equally offended all of them. We'll talk about that in just a second. But typically when I preach a passage, I kind of like look for this like sticky bottom line that might like stay with you. But honestly, Jesus just gives it to us. He says this, I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners. Why? Because it's not healthy people who need doctors. It's sick people. Those are the people that need Jesus. The calling, listen, the calling in the kingdom of God It's shocking. It was shocking to them. It's shocking to us now because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call the sinners. I said it this way, that Jesus called the surrendered. He didn't call the separated. He called the surrendered, those people who would surrender before him, not those who would say, hey, we fit a certain parameter by some box from the external things on the outside. We look a particular kind of way. Jesus over and over again looked for the person that would be surrendered before him and before God. And this is so counterintuitive. This is so counterintuitive. Because for so many, the, the church, God's kingdom, it's a place for good people. That's where good, good people are. As a matter of fact, if, uh, many times I, I've, I've talked with people and I've shared with them about the story of Jesus and you know, how you can be made right with God. And I'd ask them, well, if you were to stand before God right now, you, like, you got hit in an accident and you're killed and you're standing before God, what would you say? And many times they would say, well, I'm a pretty good person, right? They'd fill in those blanks. I'm a good person. And they would say things like, well, I've done more good than I've done bad. Because even for someone who maybe hasn't had a lifestyle of following after God, they understand intuitively that if I'm going to be right, I need to be good before God. I need to be a good person, and yet Jesus tells us something very different. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. It's the sick. I want you to think about these three groups of people that were there at this point in time. Think about Levi, this tax collector, his friends. I just imagine them being so shocked, and we'll talk about why in a moment that they would be eating with this rabbi, this man of influence, this person who was known as just and right and good and benevolent and did miracles, and he's with them. And then Jesus says, I'm, I'm here for the sick people. <laughs> hey, <laughs> wait a minute. And I just picture the disciples who are sitting next to Jesus too. They're eating with them, and they're with Jesus all the time. And Jesus says, I'm actually here for the sick people. Hey, <laughs> you know, and then the, the Pharisees, they're trying to get in to see Jesus. They're kind of on the outskirts of this thing, and they're there to hear this rabbi, but the rabbi keeps getting close to these other kinds of people, and then Jesus says that. He says, well, hold on a minute. You calling us sick too? Yeah, Jesus would say, yeah, you're all sick. You're all sick. Like, you all need a doctor. But I want you to think about those three groups of people here, and then my question is going to be really simple when the time we're done here, Okay. My question is going to be, who are you in this story? The first person, the first group of people would be Levi. The story opens up and it says that he was sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, he was sitting at the tax collector's booth not as like a, um, you know, like someone who was visiting it, but he was sitting there because he was operating the tax booth. That was his gig. Now, you guys are smart. You already know this probably, but tax collectors then, I mean, we don't like IRS people, maybe now. I've never met anyone that's ever said, I'm an IRS man, right? Even if they did, they wouldn't put it out there. But back then, I mean, tax collectors were despised and they were hated. In fact, whenever there was a list of evil people in the New Testament, it was always this. It was always the tax collectors and the 
sinners. They were always listed. It was the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners. The unclean, the unlovely, the unwanted people in community. This was them. Now, they were hated and they were despised for a really good reason. Don't forget that the Romans at this point in time were occupying Palestine. They were actually really smart about this when the Romans would come in. They wouldn't come in and say, hey, we have now conquered you, like our, our army beat your army, so now you have to change everything about your culture. They didn't do that. They let them keep their culture. They let them keep their religion. They would just say, hey, you need to do two things. You need to say Caesar's Lord, and even the Jews got like a pass from that one, and you need to pay us taxes. And the way they would keep power over a community, over a region, is they would always have like a garrison of soldiers there. They would be able to squash rebellions. They would be able to deal with rebels. They'd be able to enforce the will of Rome. And so they would always be the, how would you pay for those soldiers? By taxing the people, right? But here's what Rome knew. Rome knew that, hey, we're not from these parts. And so I need somebody who knows the ins and outs of this community. So rather than a Roman coming in, they would find someone from the community and they would know like, hey, um, when is it harvest season? When is it time that they bring the fish in? What time of day? What are the trade routes? Where might someone like go an alternate, away, alternate way to like stay away from the tax man? So these people knew everything because they, they were... They were born there. They grew up there. And the way that Rome would pay these tax collectors is they would say, hey, look, Caesar needs to get his chunk, and I don't care if you tack on a surcharge on top of that. Now, I'm a grouchy old man. When I have to buy tickets for the movie theater, and then when you get it on the app, and they say, convenience surcharge, I, <laughs> I want to like give them a piece of my mind. What do you mean a surcharge? It's not any more convenient. Like, why is there a convenience fee? We feel that when we have to pay a little extra for something. Imagine at every single turn, they're coming in and they're saying, hey, I know you just caught those fish. Give some to me. I, I know that you're, you're poor and you're barely putting food on the table for your family, but I get some of your wheat. They were constantly dealing with their own need to kind of like pay it back to Caesar. And so Levi was one of these people. And, and honestly, this was a very lucrative job. And so what would happen is these people, maybe they didn't care too much about their Jewish identity. I don't know. But they would actually put bids on becoming the tax collector. It was a desired thing for them. Uh, and so they would put a, a bid. They would put money down for that to happen. And they were not popular because of it. They sold out their, their community. right? And when, and when they would collect taxes, those taxes that were collected would go right into the hands of the people that oppressed them. It was like funding terrorism. And it made everyone ticked. And as a result, these tax collectors needed to have bodyguards. So they would leave their house. They would go to their tax booth in the day. They would go, and there would be a soldier right next to them. And everyone would look at them wearing their nice clothes, and they would just despise them. They would hate them. They needed the protection because they were despised. <clears throat> now, Levi was one of these people, and as a result of this wealth that he had, he was hated he was shamed by his family, most likely. No one in his community wanted to be close to him. He was lumped with those sinners, those tax collectors. And so you could imagine the surprise when Jesus walks by his booth, points to him and says, you, follow me. <laughs> me? What? what? Yeah, you, you can follow. But nobody likes me. I know. 
Come, come, come follow me. Nobody wants to be seen with me. I, come, come follow me. That would have shocked him. You've got to be mistaken. You've got to be mistaken. Jesus, I am not holy. See, when a rabbi would call a disciple... Many people would follow the rabbi, but there were special disciples. And here's the job of the disciple. The disciple was someone who when the rabbi was retired or the rabbi died, they would be responsible to carry on the teachings and the traditions of that rabbi. And Jesus was going to one of the most hated people in all of the community and saying, I want you to follow me and carry on my traditions. I'm not holy, Jesus. I know. I'm, I'm going to make you holy. Who would ever want to be near me? No one ever wants to be near me. So, I know, but guess what? They're going to be near you. You want to know why? Because we're going to your house tonight, and you're throwing the banquet, so invite all your friends. I don't have any friends. Well, invite the friends that you have. And so they do that. Levi welcomes them into his home. They eat the banquet. They invite all of the people. T Levi would say, the only people that I have are the reprobates and the outcasts. And Jesus says, I know. That's, true. That's exactly who I want to be around. And you're the key to getting to them. So you come and you follow me. So there's Levi. And then there's the disciples. Imagine being one of these disciples. They're largely fishermen. They're blue-collar workers. And they weren't too excited about Levi, Levi and his friends. Seriously, Jesus. You know who this Levi guy is? Like, we're from the same community. This is the guy that, like, takes our fish. This is the guy, Jesus, you don't understand. When we would go out fishing late in the night... We would come back, and you know who was at the dock? Levi. He wanted some of our fish. I can't even put food on my own table. Like, my kid needs braces, and he would take the fish from me, and then when I would give him, give him slack for it, guess who came out of, out of the bushes with the soldiers right there with him? They bullied me. And because of Levi, my wife has to work, so she's, she's making rugs with her mother, and they would go to the... To the, to the market, and as they went to the market, they would like go a back way, but then where was Levi, and he would like overturn their baskets trying to see if there's anything they were hiding from them, and then and, and, and he disrespected my wife. You don't understand, Jesus. This Levi guy is up to no good. He, he, he's in my community. I grew up with him. I know who he is, and you're wanting us to just eat with him? See, dining with someone much like it is now is an invitation to intimacy. It's an invitation to community. It's saying, I want it be in your world. I want you to be in mine. I want to get to know things about you. And that's what Jesus was doing with Levi. Hey, I'm going to dine with you. You're going to be a part of us. And the disciples would have looked at him and said, Jesus, you've, you've got to be mistaken. I, I, can't, I can't fellowship with someone who so betrayed me. And this isn't lightweight stuff. Like, I, I hate this person. Do you know what he said to me? Do you know how he acts towards his people? And you just want me to eat with them? Now, this is what Jesus was doing. So powerful. I want you to stop to think about this. That the power of the gospel and the lives of the disciples takes people that are at war and brings them back together again. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. That warring people would come together and would be reconciled. And that's what Jesus was beginning to do. He wasn't just saving the individual. See, he was saving the community. And it was starting with his disciples who were more inclined to hate than to accept. So Jesus offended them too. Then there's the third group. There's the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders. 
Now, it's interesting, when you think about religious leaders, you tend to think about like, hey, these are people who are really concerned with um, how someone gets into heaven, right? <laughs> like we talk about it that way. Hey, preacher, what do I need to do to get into heaven? They weren't as concerned with how someone gets into heaven. They were more concerned with how do I make God's heaven, like how do I get God's heaven onto earth? I want the kingdom of heaven to bring it to earth. And so to do that, here's what they would do. Well, if we want to bring that heavenliness to earth, it means that what we experience at earth needs to be as free from sin as it would be in heaven. So we're going to separate ourselves from people that are sinful people. We're going to separate ourselves from people who, who don't do it the right way. See, we've got rules, and this is what you can eat, and this is what you can't read, this is what you can, you know, who you can marry and who you can't marry, all of these sorts of things. They would say anyone who was wicked, anyone who was unholy, well, we would want to discourage that, so we're going to separate ourselves out from them. So you'd want to exclude them from the collective because they're not bringing heaven, the kingdom of heaven to earth. So when, when Jesus, <laughs> this holy man, this rabbi, says, I want you to come and I want you to eat with me, they was like, what, what, well, hold on, Jesus. That's not how this works. He's not distancing himself from the unclean. He's actually bringing them in. And this offended the Pharisees. That's why he's asked the disciples. That's why the Pharisees asked him, why, why? I'm confused. Why does he eat with people like this? Jesus, you are crazy. You can't be from God. See, the problem was not that these Pharisees weren't zealous for God. They were very zealous for God. The problem was this, was that they replaced the heart of God for his people with the traditions of man. They replaced God's heart for how God loved the people and yearned to be reconciled with the people with the traditions that they instituted. And here's what I mean by that. If you're in church, you know that there's a passage in Ephesians 5 that says, don't get drunk on wine. And so the Pharisees would take a passage like that that says, don't get drunk on wine. They say, yes, I don't want to get drunk on wine. So they would say, not only am I not going to get drunk on wine, but I'm also not going to drink. See how righteous I am? See how set apart I am? I'm bringing God's heaven, heavenly kingdom to earth because I'm not even going to drink. And then they would say, not only am I not going to drink, but I'm not going to go to a bar. I'm not going to go to a restaurant that would serve alcohol. See how holy I am, Jesus? Like, I don't want to be around. And then they would say, not only am I not going to drink, I'm not going to go to a restaurant, but I'm not going to be around anyone who drinks either. I am so separate. <laughs> I bring God's heavenly kingdom to earth right here. And so what happened is they did that, but they didn't just do that once. They did that dozens and hundreds of times. They would take the law of God and they would make it bigger by putting these traditions of man. And so imagine it was like the Swiss cheese of, of like spirituality, just holes all over it. They took one small thing that was made for the protection and the love and the care of God's people. It's not good to get drunk on wine. That's going to lead to bad things in your life. You don't want to do that. And they turned it into something that they could accomplish that could set them apart and say, I'm better than you. Look how separate I am. And Jesus had a problem with this. In fact, this is why Jesus rebuked them later in Mark chapter 7. This is what he said to them. Oh, I love, I love this, is, this is the prophetic side of me. He just socks it to them. He says, 
you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Because this is what Moses said. He said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. In other words, it's important that you honor your parents. In a society, for your own heart, this is how God has us do it. Honor your parents. That's good, right? But you say that if anyone who declares that what they might have used to help their father or mother is Corbin, in other words, hey, I know I set aside money for my mom and dad because they're at an age where they can't work anymore, and so now I need to bring them, and I need to house them, and I need to take care of them because they're retired, and they need help, but instead of doing that, I'm going to take that money, and I'm going to dedicate that to God's service in the temple. I'm going to dedicate that to the missionary. I'm going to build this you know, altar to God. I don't know. They would do this, and Jesus, Jesus had a problem with this. He said, you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, they took the thing that was supposed to protect relationship, bring people close to God, help them understand his heart and mind, and they would expand it. They created a Swiss cheese Christianity and spirituality. And Jesus attacked them for this. You fail to understand the heart of God for people. And that was the problem with them over and over and over again. And they drifted into this thing called legalism. And they had completely lost it. And that's why... When Jesus shows up and he's interacting with people who didn't look anything like the Pharisees. And fra- fra- frankly, they didn't look anything like Jesus. And to me, it's fascinating that people that look nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. People that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And because of that, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they would say, this guy, he's a friend of sinners. He's a drunken, drunkard. He's a glutton. Jesus got a bad rap because of how he was around people. But here's what Jesus saw in Levi. Jesus didn't see someone who was separated from the world. That was not Levi's MO. But Jesus saw someone who would surrender before him. Levi surrendered before him. God calls those who are surrendered, not those who are separated. And listen, listen, this is so important. Maybe this is the only thing you need to hear. That surrender is always the prerequisite for any great move of God in your heart and in your life is when you go before him and you just say, Jesus, I don't know. And I don't know the path forward, but I'm coming with arms open wide and I'm surrendering before you. You know why we worship sometimes with our hands up? If someone came up to you in an alley with a gun and they said, put them up. Right, what do you do? You put your hands up. Why? Because it's the universal sign of surrender. Saying, Jesus, I, I surrender before you. I don't even know the right path forward, but I'm just saying I, I'm not trying on my own. I'm surrendering before you. It is always the prerequisite of God's movement and his breakthrough in your life. I have seen it in my life. I've seen it in others. Time after time after time after time after time. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The prerequisite for his movement is always when we surrender because he will always use the surrendered person and not the separate person. So let me ask you this question. Who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? Maybe, maybe you're one of those Pharisees. You're one of those Pharisees. You're like me. You've grown up in religious circles and you know what it's supposed to look like when someone follows after God. And so when someone comes in and they don't look like that, you have a moment inside. You just start to think, maybe they don't smell 
like someone who should follow Jesus should smell like. And you have these moments where there's this obstacle in your heart and you start to struggle with it and you start to think, well, what if they smoke? What if they drink? What if they vote differently than I do? What if they view this social agenda differently than I do? What if their kids influence my kids and so I've got to separate out from them? It's fascinating. It's fascinating when you read the first gospel account, Matthew's account of this, this is how he records the same interaction. He says this, on hearing this, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then, then he says a refrain that he repeats over and over again in the gospels. It's this, listen, listen, this is so good. He says, go find out what I mean from this. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and and not sacrifice. He's quoting from the book of Hosea right there. What he's saying is this. It's easy to fake sacrifice. It's easy to look good on the outside but have your heart proud, judgmental, hateful, selfish, all of that stuff. But you know what you can't fake? You can't fake mercy. Because mercy is informed by your own point of need. Mercy says, I know what it's like to be a young parent and I'm not able to pay all the bills that I need to pay and now I see someone else struggling mercy informs my decision I'm not going to say well you made your own decisions you should sleep in the bed that you made mercy says I've been there and I care mercy says I've needed forgiveness when I screwed up I'm going to give forgiveness Mercy, mercy comes from a humble heart. Sacrifice, separation comes from a proud heart. That's why Jesus said it over and over again. Test me on this. Go through the book of Matthew. Over and over again, Jesus said, find out what I mean by this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's the Christian pathway. Is my heart surrendered before God? Am I merciful because I'm in touch of what God did in my heart? Pharisees, he was angry with them because they missed it. Over and over again, they missed it. So let me ask the question this way. Maybe you find yourself to be a Pharisee, but let me ask the question this way. What unnecessary, what unnecessary obstacle have you placed in the way of someone coming to Christ? What unnecessary obstacle do you place in someone's pathway to coming to Christ? Do they need to vote like you do? Do they need to make a certain income? Do they need to have a certain skin color? Listen, this is, what, this is what the New Testament teaches us. The New Testament teaches us that the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, it's foolishness to the Greeks. It's foolishness to the world, and it's a stumbling block to the Jews who are looking for a sign. There's always going to be a stumbling block to someone coming to Christ, and it's going to be their surrender before him. It's going to be the gospel itself, but it's never meant to be our extra traditions. That's why we said, you know what? We think we can reach more people by not meeting on a Saturday night versus a Sunday morning. So we're not going to let that tradition get in the way of somehow we can reach people. And I never want to make it so that, hey, we have to have church here. And if we don't have church here, we'll never be able to pay the bills. So, you know, we don't pass a basket. You know why we don't pass a basket? It's because if we ever need to cancel the church to go help with the need in the community, I never want that to get in the way. Like, so, so we don't do that. Like, we, we're not trying to let the traditions that we have get in the way of what God wants to do in the heart and the mind of our community. What obstacles do we put in the way of someone coming to Christ? Are you a Pharisee? Or are you one of the disciples? And, and the question that I want you to, to wrestle with is this. Is my unwillingness an obstacle to walking in forgiveness with someone else? I'm going to ask that very carefully. Is my unwillingness an obstacle to walking in forgiveness with someone else? 
not this is hard, but it, am I willing? Because here's what I found in my own heart. When I've been unwilling to forgive someone, this is what I experienced. Jesus, you don't know what it's like that they hurt me like that. And I want to twist the screws on them in my heart, and I'm never going to forgive them. And it becomes a bitterness and a root in my heart that enslaves me. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus welcomed those, to, those, those tax collectors to the disciples so they could be set free from their own bitterness. Is your unwillingness an unnecessary obstacle to walking in forgiveness with another person? You may very well be right that someone else hurt you, but don't forget that you're as in need for God's grace as they are. And that's the beauty and the glory of the cross. It's the great equalizer that we're all in need of the grace of Jesus in our lives. It is the great equalizer, the the same grace that I want poured out on me, I need to be ready to pour it out on other people. And that's the secret to walking in forgiveness with another person. Jesus says, hey, how many times are you supposed to forgive 70 times 7, 70 times 7, 70 times 7 times, over and over and over again. The measure which you forgive others is the measure that God will forgive you. What obstacle is your unwillingness an obstacle that's getting in the way of you forgiving someone else or are you Levi are you Levi you're in your booth people are sneering at you as they walk past and Jesus walks by and says follow me and you think I can't possibly follow God with all that I have done Jesus says I haven't come for the righteous I've come for the sinners and listen, there's this, there's this overwhelming impulse, and I've experienced it in my life, and I've experienced it in other people's lives. There's this impulse that says, I can't come to God before I get my own junk in order. But don't forget what Paul says. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says this. It's so powerful. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, not once we got our act together, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen. Surrender is the currency of the kingdom of God. It's not sacrifice. Jesus never asks us to get our act together before we can come to him. He simply asks that you surrender and you follow. And Levi, I imagine he had all sorts of obstacles he wanted to throw up. So if you're Levi in this story, here's your question. What unnecessary or artificial obstacle have you placed in the way of you following after Jesus? What have you said, hey, this sin is too big for Jesus to forgive it? What have you placed in the way? On more than one occasion, I've talked with people who said, I can't possibly step foot into a church. If I step foot into a church, God would strike me down with everything that I've done. It's like, if God wanted to strike you down, he would have already done that. That's not his heart. Jesus says, I want to come because guess what? I'm the good physician. And no physician ever looks out into the waiting room and says, man... Look at all of those losers. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Why won't they just get their act together? That's not how a, like a good physician does. And we have a good physician who's able to step in and perfectly diagnose, come up with the absolute perfect solution, and then guess what? Afterwards, he pays the bill. Right? That's our physician. He says, I- I've come near to those that are sick. What effect did it have on Levi? See, see, 
we can look at this and we can say, so Levi, what, his sins were just forgiven and he just could go on and keep collect, collecting his taxes and it didn't matter what he did? Is that what happened here? No, listen to what effect it actually had on him. Levi surrendered to Jesus. He surrendered. And this is what it says in Luke. Luke records it this way. The same, same thing. It says that Levi got up and he left everything and he followed him. Now listen, when these fishermen, when they left their nets behind, they could always go back to the family business. But Levi, those Romans weren't going to accept them again. When he, when he left that behind, that was his only chance. His bridges were burned. And let's not forget what he, what he, what he let up. He let up and was losing all of his source of income, his wealth. Who was ever going to hire him again after that? No one in that community would say, yeah, I really trust that guy. Let's, let's put him on the payroll. That wasn't the case. And the community hated him. So now his guards that were going to protect him when he walked during the day, they were going to not be there anymore. Now he was completely vulnerable. And that's why it was so important that Levi changed not just his pathways, not just his patterns, but he changed who he was as a person. He needed to be redefined who he was. He needed to be given a new name. And it's really fascinating that Levi, as he left everything behind and followed Jesus, that Jesus actually gives him a new name. See, the Levi, the old Levi, he was an outcast and ashamed and no one wanted to be around him except for the rest of the reprobates and outcasts. He was seen as a scourge and all of his community wanted him dead. But Matthew was called by the king now when we get, think of our names, we just pick cute names or names that we like, but for this ancient culture, names had deep meaning. We have a, had a brother who used to attend here, it was from Ghana, and his children were named these beautiful names, and they had deep meaning. It was things like, God provides, and God is close, and it was deeply meaningful. You know what Jesus called Levi, this outcast who was good for nothing? He called him Matthew, which means a gift from God. And the skills and the talents that used to be used to serve the Romans would now be used to build the kingdom of God and his counsel would be trusted and his ability to understand numbers would now be used for good effect, for good purpose. It's interesting that Mark, Luke, and John, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark, Luke, and John all refer to this person as Levi. But Matthew refers to himself as Matthew because Jesus had redefined who he was. And he didn't see himself as Levi anymore, the outcast. He saw, saw himself as the gift of God. And listen, some of you need to stop defining yourself how the world defines you. I'm an addict, I'll only ever be an addict. I'm addicted to pornography, I'll only ever be addicted to pornography. I'm an outcast, I'll only ever be an outcast. I'm divorced, I will always be on my rap sheet and that's all I'm ever going to be and the world throws that at you and the enemy t plants that seed in your heart and Jesus says, listen, what I have declared holy, don't you dare call profane. What I have called set free, don't you dare call it in bondage. 
Because listen, you'll become how you understand yourself to be. And if all you understand yourself to be is the addict or the mom that always yells, I have no other course of action but to be this, then that's all you'll ever be. But when you say, you know what, hold on, what does God say about me? He says, I'm a, I'm a holy nation. I'm, a, a, I'm a, a priest. I'm loved by God. I'm not bound by a spirit of fear, so I don't need to be that person that's always afraid because that's not the spirit I've been given. I've been given the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now listen, Levi was ashamed of who he was. Matthew was a gift of God. And, and Jesus leveraged that to build the kingdom. Because when Levi said, well, who am I supposed to bring to the party? Jesus says, bring your friends. I don't have any friends, nothing but these people. And Jesus says, awesome. That's who I want at my table. And they're welcome. Now listen, Levi was able to access people that Jesus may have never had access to, or those fishermen would have never had access to. And Levi leveraged those people that would say, you know, I know who you used to be, and now I see who you are. Listen, there are people that you'll have access to that I will never have access to because they've seen how you live, and they know your story. And Jesus says that, hey, God's going to do big things through small faith. That's why he calls small faith, like Levi's faith, he calls it like a mustard seed, this tiny little thing. And he says this, he says, the mustard seed, even though it's the smallest in the garden, it becomes this huge tree with branches and, and all of the birds, you know, just perch and, and find rest and shade in its branches. I know what's fascinating about a mustard seed? It doesn't actually become a tree. It becomes about an eight-foot bush. Right? And that's kind of the point. And in God's kingdom, he takes small things and he makes them a blessing and a benefit to other people. But it's only when we surrender, God will always use the surrendered rather than the separated. So which are you? Which are you? Are you a Pharisee, separating people from God? Are you a disciple? God says you need to walk in forgiveness, recognizing the same mercy I'm giving them as the same mercy I'm giving you. Or are you Levi? The surrendered gift from God. And how are we doing as a church? Do we put artificial, unnecessary obstacles in the way to people coming to Christ? Or are we desperately seeking after those who need a relationship? And that's why we say it this, like we'll do anything short of sin to make the gospel clear and accessible to anyone following after him. That's our heart's desire. How are we doing with that? It turns out that Jesus was more interested in the surrendered than the separated. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need the doctor. But he could do way more with a surrendered life than he could a separated life. And historians tell us that Matthew actually went on to be a pastor of a small church he planted in Ethiopia. And some 30 years after Jesus died, the king of Ethiopia didn't like him very much and sent some soldiers, the same kind of soldiers that would have protected Levi, came and ended up killing Levi. See, Levi, Matthew, followed Jesus even unto death. Turns out that this tax collector counted the cost. That God always uses the surrendered rather than the separated. Where are you at? Where's your heart at? Are you surrendered before him? Because surrender is always the prerequisite of some movement of God. The breakthrough that you're after always comes when you surrender before Him. Let me pray, and then we're just going to respond with a song of gratitude before Him, and then we'll be done for the morning. God, this is hard truth. 
It's power-packed. About three or four different sermons in all of this. Guys, some of us in the middle of all of this, and myself included, man, we're recovering Pharisees. And uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's, ha- it's, it's hard to think about those people. Um, and, and, and we want to separate ourselves from them. That's not what Jesus did. Some of us maybe are struggling to forgive legitimate hurts and offenses from someone else. God, help us to be in touch and have access to your mercy that you laid upon us. And then some of us might be the Levites and we're struggling to forgive ourselves. And we're living out our lives like Levi and not like Matthew. And the gospel in truth like, speaks to all of us. It does. The gospel has to speak to all of us. So God, we pray that you would let it do its work in our hearts, in our heads, in our hands as we choose to worship, as we submit ourselves to you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.